Welcome to Entrepreneurial Reality with Bash. Every week we'll be speaking to startup and scale-up founders to learn about them, their ambitions for the business, goals and objectives. Every conversation is a moment in time, documenting entrepreneurs' current situation with a view to coming back next year to see how they are getting on. Each journey will be different. Each innovation could be game-changing. I hope you enjoy. I have with me Olivier Plant, CEO of Flexi or ThinkThing Limited. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. So for the benefit of the listeners, could you give us a bit of background as to who you are, the history of sort of the projects you've been working on in the past, and then we'll go into talking about the current project you're working on. Yeah, sure. I started my my journey really uh, wanting to design uh, in a different way. I uh, really like to to sort of question the status quo of things in general around me. Uh, so at a very young age, I was creating stuff that was that were basically ideas. I, I'd like to create things around me. I had a, a great uh, environment surrounding me to, to sort of nurture this capability. I started to design on a general way uh, here in Barcelona uh, in, a, in a firm. Uh, projects that were from you know, designing a user experience flow for customers calling call centers all the way to reinventing the digital wallet, right? The wallet we used for, for many years. How are we going to transition this to digital? At that point, I spun off on that sense and created my own company with a former partner uh, that was helping bigger companies do that digital transformation, right? And there I, I started to build products uh, in the digital space, apps, uh, websites, uh, portals, neat uh, technical features, for instance, in you know, how near-field communication will have a use in the future. Right? NFC was sort of a technology in a search of a problem. And that was interesting to sort of brainstorm and create user-centered products right? using the, the user and create a, a product that would make sense for them. Based on that, I founded another company which was more around creativity and the school system. Uh, so that was more a philanthropical venture for, for me and my, my former partner, where we wanted to create sort of a franchise that would nurture creativity in schools, which we believed was broken, uh, especially here in, in Spain, very traditional way of, of educating. Uh, but we know that creativity based on research was sort of the right investment for the future. So it was all around creativity. That was, you know, an interest for me. But on those two experiences, uh, what I really liked is questioning the status quo was something that was my main driver in life, right? Questioning things, how are things done? And it came out to me that uh, one fundamental problem in the mobile uh, journey was related with uh, the current company, Flexi, the Flexi keyboard was the answer to a problem that everyone goes through, which is switching between apps when you're trying to message someone on WhatsApp and you need to share that content of information or a definition on Wikipedia or uh, a song from the service you like or a video from YouTube, right? At every instance, I needed to switch from one app to the other, copy paste information from one to the other, you know, share something, re-enter the email, re-enter the WhatsApp conversation. So I was like leaving conversation. So we said to ourselves, like, either we create a messaging app like WhatsApp, 
but we no one will want to jump from WhatsApp or existing messaging apps, giants like Telegram and, uh, and others. So the entry point that is next to the messaging app is the keyboard. Everyone uses a keyboard every single day. We started shaping that vision that a future of the keyboard would be this quick access to content relevant to the messaging experience across any app, right? So even at that time, we knew that the Flexi keyboard could be powerful in Evernote, which is not a chat app, but it's a note app. And this note app has capabilities, but the keyboard is there. So how can we enhance the experience of taking notes in mobility? How can we enhance the experience of chatting? And here we are. So Flexi is, is the third party keyboard, one of the most popular in the world. It has the fastest access to content in the world, the fastest typing experience in the world. And we're moving toward like creating this new type of platform, which understand the context of a conversation and can drive in relevant content based on that conversation. Uh, and this is where we are at the moment. Uh, we're pending to, to do exciting announcement where we, uh, we share more with the, with the end user. But for now, what I can say is that the Flexi keyboard will change the game of what we believe is a keyboard today. Are you in the process of fundraising at this point in time? Right now, we're not uh, raising funds. However, we're really open to keep the conversation going with potential investors. So what we are at right now is we just closed a round of funding that will enable our company to reach break-even and profitability. And this was the focus, and this is the focus of the funding round. And we'll be uh, more or less uh, sustainable and maybe ask for extra capital for growth. Currently, we have 1.2 million users. We have partnerships uh, that are in place and coming. The one that we can talk about is the partnership with Palm, the new Palm device that uh, made a comeback. Palm brand was uh, very special for us, special for a lot of people, but unfortunately was removed from the market right, because of different reasons. Now it's doing a comeback and we're partnered with Palm in their future of what we, what we believe is going to, again, change the game in the uh, smartphone industry. We have other partnerships coming in different parts of the world, some in Europe, some in, in Africa, which is a big growth market for us. And um, in Asia as well is pretty important. All around this sort of vision of creating this uh, smart keyboard uh, assistant. You know, that's, that's something fundamental to our company. I think I want to touch base on that once, one second is a lot of things and fuss is going around smart voice assistants, smart keyboard assistants are really something that people can use today and are very precise. So if you're talking about something, the keyboard knows what you're talking about locally on the device because it's text. So we don't need to process voice. This is one of the fundamentals of our company is that we can impact users today rather than impact them in voice. Uh, voice is used by emerging, like not, um, let's say developed countries, but the emerging countries are, are still behind. You know, voice is taking a lot of data, needs a powerful processing. We don't believe that voice will be, you know, impacting enough uh, users right now. So we invested our time and energy in creating this really smart AI assistant inside the keyboard. What I'm quite interested in, you touch upon security of data mm -hmm. and what's different about Flexi compared to other keyboard functionalities out there? 
Yeah, so um, we, it's a good question. I think what we try to do our best is to keep all the processing of the, the information on the phone itself. It starts with the principle of saying, do we need this to go to the cloud or not, right? And what we saw is that with the capabilities of phones today, frameworks exist, right? Open source, secure ones, in order to build and process information on the phone itself. So with Flexi, users are assured that the actual information inside their phone stays on the phone compared with other keyboards that mask or let's say uh, are very opaque, not to name like the biggest search company or the biggest software companies. <laughs> they promise to connect your social accounts in order to learn how you type, but in nature, they really use that data to do something else. And that we believe is a lot of personal data that are in the cloud of someone that you don't know when they will close the door or just move this box from one country to the other. And that is all the text you're sending. <laughs> and so a lot of few people are aware of that, which is interesting to see how Google and, and Twitter and Facebook are in some uh, trials right now, right, in the United States for manipulating data, right? The keyboard is really not in this scope, and we think that it should be. This said, we're doing enough work on our side to protect the user's privacy, and the others, they can do whatever they want, but we will always know that this, this is what they do with the data. It's, it's a question of values for it's our good. company. Yeah, it's good to hear that you've got the user's best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned as well around enhancing the use of the keyboard. So on your website, there was mention of artificial intelligence and the ability to understanding the context of the conversation. Uh, what areas of enhancement could you share today yeah, so we're, we're working on a technology that we've been working on for two and a half years. It's a really hard problem to solve. We worked on a technology that we call Next Service Prediction. Uh, next Service Prediction is bound to become the next leap forward after uh, Next Word Prediction, right? So, okay, you can anticipate what is the word that you're going to type next, but we want to anticipate what do you need next, right? Um, so... We've built uh, custom frameworks inside the keyboard using uh, some deep learning meta methods where we are able to, uh, to understand who is behind the keys, what type of data they are typing, which is all protected and encrypted on the phone itself. Typically how it works is that it's a text engine and it's able to understand if a user likes uh, beer versus wine and all those types of uh, you know, recreation activities. For instance, oh, I just finished uh, my run, my jogging time was X time. Then we know that if the user, the user is a bit an active person, we know that they are jogging, right? All this goes in the AI and is capable of understanding what the user will want next. Right. So, for instance, if someone does a bicycle, right, they bike mm -hmm. every now and then, we know that they have a bike. And if they start talking about weekend activities, we can suggest bike uh, activities if it's relevant, right? Or like bike rides or a new trail uh, that is ne nearby their, their home. But all this is happening on the phone itself. And that's the magic is that we can suggest things to the user without contacting 
the external world because what we're providing is like, hey, do you want to bike adventures this weekend? At that moment, the user sees that suggestion, he can tap on it. And this is when we contact the external world and we, we ask an API to drive in the information inside the keyboard. No sensitive information is shared in that exchange. And also when the user decides to press on it, obviously the user is conscious that this is coming from the internet because it will be loading. There's always this sort of transparency, but there's no exchange of sensitive data. Like the service of the bike API doesn't need to know what you typed, right? They just need to know this person needs some activities this weekend. That's it. And then we start entering a new era where uh, this type of technology can be on the PC, the desktop, and also, um, and also the smartphone. From an ad revenue perspective, you could experience a, a massive hike in, in numbers over time, uh, making it more efficient to access services and products on behalf of the user. Uh, but mm -hmm. from, your, from your perspective, from the business's perspective, that there could be a, a real significant revenue stream as a result. Yeah, it is, because we start to become a strong player that is before the big guys because you are you are in the conversation so literally with the next service prediction you are the first that the user will tap you're going to be the first because you're really direct in the keyboard that's a huge revenue stream our company doesn't fit one mold if i may uh, we, we're not an advertising tech company we're not an ai company we're not a, just a text company we're not a messaging platform we don't fit really in all those. We believe that we're at the intersection of many disciplines. And this is what, what we love about this, this vision is that we're changing the game of advertising. We're transforming advertising into something useful. And by advertising, I mean a service provider, let's say by like, like Amazon, will never be able to push and bombard users on our product. It will not be this way. The way it will define if I see Amazon suggestions is because I am an Amazon user. I have the profile that defines that. And I will see Amazon as suggestions depending on the context of the conversation. So it's not keywords. It's not, let's say Amazon says bicycle. So every time I type bicycle out of context, I will see Amazon as, as a suggestions. That's not the reason. That doesn't make any sense. So we're changing the game of advertising where the profile of the user and context defines what he sees. And our metric is not about massive advertising flows. It's about super high quality click-through rate conversions. That's the magic where the click-through rate on our platform can be 20%, right? That's um, different. It's really high. Why? because we're not bombarding them. It's not advertising, it's utility, it's need, needs, right? So, and, and I think messaging is, there's a lot of things going on. WhatsApp is a closed platform. Um, it's very hard for messengers to build sort of advertising strategies inside messaging because it's, it's fundamentally wrong to put, a, let's say, uh, a bot inside my conversation while I'm talking to someone. Mm. I want to have the choice to opt in or opt out without me being bombarded by advertising. And the model of Facebook and the models of those guys, they're all based on massive scale quantities. More you're in the face of the user, more profit you have. We're looking for a common sense uh, sort of 
experience, right? That's the experience that we want to provide to users. Okay, so here and now, you've got the product, you've just completed a, a, a round of funding, congratulations, uh, with a Thank view you. to then becoming profitable and uh, sustainable as a business. Where do you see yourselves in the next 12 months then? What's your expectation over that time? In 12 months, we have uh, a clear uh, roadmap to be part of uh, several handset manufacturers, uh, flexible by default keyboard. We're expecting to drive in about a 2 million uh, in revenue turnover because of the scale of the platform and the scale of distribution that we have, thanks to the handset manufacturers. The company will be at a at 100 million valuation mark, uh, thanks to some players with who we are talking with uh, for integration with their huge user base. We're talking about 400 million plus users. That's where we want to be next, where we think that uh, we can truly become this new type of keyboard input where some even third party developers that are building their own keyboards will use our technology. Few keyboards started to work on next word prediction, anticipating the next word that the user wants to type. We want to be the leader in the, the need that the user wants in real time. And this will be part of a monetization platform and could be embedded in other third party keyboards, which we believe would, would be giants wanting our technology. So that's, that's where we see ourselves, I would say. I'm looking forward to watching you progress over that time and, and see how you do enhance and improve the revenue streams, et cetera. Great. Um, Olivia, what sort of lessons have you learned? Is there any particular lesson that you can share? Well, there's many, <laughs> there's many. I think, I think from a pure founder uh, point of view, Lesson learned are really about understanding in what you're putting yourself into. So for, for me, I knew what was starting a company. I really wanted to start a company. This is my third one. I really love what I do and I'm really good at, at business. The things I've, I've learned that are not really going in this positive <laughs> so, <laughs> way is that there's a lot of service providers out there or, or companies that are trying to help you do better or like do a better performance, right? I'm not super happy with service providers in general. The reason is because you are the master of your company. You know the company. People in your company are experts of what you're doing. They know the market. They know the competition. Someone external coming in may have an external point of view, but I've seen a lot of uh, founders following them like they were gurus. And the companies could, was, was going sometimes in the wrong direction because you listen too much to what the others have to say. I think the gut feeling is something that you should listen to a lot. Obviously, I mean, there's common sense and gut feeling. Eh? I mean, you need to really have this balance between rational and, and emotion. But there's something that tells you, oh, this team player seems to be really, really good. So I'm going to hire that person. Hiring was a very, very difficult thing to, to learn as well as a founder. It's like a lottery. <laughs> Some people join the company and then they leave and you're like, why this happened? But at least we had the reflection on maybe this is our mistake. It's not their mistake, right? In terms of funding, I think what I've learned is how it is hard sometimes for investors to understand different types of companies like ours. When I explained the company that I have, an investor common feedback was, hmm, 
I don't understand. It's like it's not it's not a fintech company. It's not an ad tech company. It's not uh, like a marketplace really. Uh, it's a utility. So like they have a hard time grasping on your company. So articulating really the, the pitch that was that was a challenge. But I I overcame that that challenge. On the other aspects as well, that was uh, skills that I didn't have before that I. I needed to learn is I think founders think that they express themselves very clearly always. This was part of self-awareness of, of myself. I didn't know how to sell. I didn't know how to pitch, but I got help from other people. So I asked for help around and said, can you help me You know, with my pitch? I'm doing this competition and I need to pitch the idea in front of a crowd of 300 people, then it moved to 15,000 people, right? So the pitches that I've made was like always on bigger, bigger scale. And I didn't know how to do that. So instead of keeping everything to myself and believing that I will be really good at pitching, I got in touch with someone that was expert at pitching. And this is when I saw the light because the difference from start to finish was dramatic. You know, I, it completely changed myself internally. It gave me a different, a different perspective on how to pitch. And this led to how important it is to keep attention for, uh, for selling, right? So a founder needs to sell. When I see founders delegating fundraising to someone else in the team, I can understand why, but I feel that the founder, the original founder, needs to really learn how to sell. This is a sales process. You're selling to investors, you're selling to businesses, you're selling to users. You need to have, the sweat is like sales funnels, <laughs> right? So you, every, every time, every day, if you don't speak with anyone external to the company and you don't learn something from the external uh, world, it's a lost opportunity. And around you, there's a lot of people that are willing to help. So it doesn't cost anything to ask. For help at least you'll know if they say no or yes how did you find these experts in the first place what did you do so essentially what i do is i go on 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 the internet on sources of information like you know press or linkedin right but sometimes i hear about someone who's let's say who just exited a company and was in a similar space than us or something that we are looking into but we're not sure if we're going to go into like for instance icos and cryptocurrency I spent a lot of time asking a lot of things about this to a lot of people. Came to my conclusion that mm, it's not really the moment. It's not the moment right now. A lot of people started the wave of cryptocurrency, but I didn't feel, I mean, gut feeling didn't tell me that this was maybe something that we should go toward. Right? But I asked people around and I reached out to them on LinkedIn, you know, asking for help. It's like, I am this person, I'm doing this and I'm trying to get feedback on that aspect. I don't know if you would be willing to spare. I get asked this on a weekly basis. People reach out to me and say, I am building this and I would like to have you know, a call with you. I, and I spend 15 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe helping them uh, depending on what they need. I like to do that because I learn about the process and I know in what place they are, right? They're trying to build something and building something is not a turnkey solution. It's really tough. We have this... I compare also with, uh, sometimes the startup ecosystem with, with the, how families are perceived, you know, like having kids, how you see images of families walking down the beaches and it's all beautiful and this marketing perspective, like imagery of the family, how it's beautiful all the time. 
no, family is fucking hard, right? I mean, I think startups, sometimes entrepreneurs, they jump in it and they're like, yeah, man, I'm going to be doing my startup and my idea and there's all this super cool motivation. And as soon as there's like a wave of, of wind that goes in the other direction, they are completely baffled and they go down and they're like, oh, we're going to die because the boat is not going in a direction and everyone else is saying the contrary. You need resilience. You need to have like a first hit learn from that hit and then say, mm, where should I go? Where should I reflect? But never lose the motiv motivation. That's what I've learned in short, right? <laughs> I've learned so many things, but in short, that is sort of my highlight. Yeah. That's great. So in terms of working, building a business in a foreign country, what are your experiences there? It was challenging. I mean, Europe, uh, as you may notice, has a very different mentality than in North America, where I, I so I am Canadian. I've been uh, here for about nine years in in, uh, in Spain, in Barcelona specifically. And starting a company uh, in in Europe has a lot of bureaucracy. But we made the right decision in creating this uh, structure where it's a it's a limited company in the UK and a Spanish subsidiary in Spain, which gives us the flexibility of having you know cost effective uh, work but also the benefit of simplicity of legals <laughs> in, in the UK, right? And so we're a British, uh, let's say, uh, founded company, and we, um, we can benefit from the government help. Uh, we can benefit from a very good, healthy investment landscape in the UK and Europe. The challenge of starting a company is always, uh, as a foreigner, is getting familiar with uh, the process of the country. Right. I still feel that in North America, uh, it's still much easier to build a company. I removed the U.S. from that because in the U.S., legally, all the structure is quite complicated. Like legal documents are very, very, very long. And that's what I like about the U.K. is that it's much more simple, simplified. Uh, that's the first challenge is if you're coming from another country and you're trying to build something in Europe, there are things and surprises that are still, you know, you wonder why it exists. <laughs> like uh, the notary in Spain versus notaries in, in the UK. Notaries in Spain are really powerful. Uh, they are in the process of every single thing you actually do. In the UK, it's much more reduced. It's more administrative stuff, right? I mean, but it's part of building a business. You need to be okay with admin aspects of the company. This will be part of your game. I mean, as a CEO, you're in legals all the time. <laughs> legal things here, legal things over there. It's, uh, it's part of it. So you have to learn to love something. You, you need to be okay with the novelty of tasks that you're faced to every day, right? Because there are many, there are many tasks. There are many, many <laughs> tasks that you cannot even imagine that you will have to do. Um, so if you're not okay with that, you know, <laughs> so that's, that's part of, so by my personality is I like to be, I, I'm pretty much self-driven and I, I like to learn new stuff. That's part of my fulfillment in, in this type of job, right? It's that being an entrepreneur, you touch to so many disciplines at the same time and you need to learn how it works, how growth works, how marketing works, right? But I like to do that. I like to read stuff and learn things. I think every entrepreneur should be in that mindset because then you have like this arm length understanding of your company and how things work. Yes, I agree totally. And uh, in the spirit of continual learning, what particular books are you reading at the moment that you could share or, or recommend to the listeners? 
Yeah. The book that I've uh, recently uh, read was called Traction by the founder of DuckDuckGo. So how do you find your traction with users? Bullseye model. Uh, so this is a very interesting mo uh, book to read. The other one is From Zero to One. <laughs> that is very fulfilling as a book. I think Zero to One goes over a lot of things that can help an entrepreneur build something massive. I'm interested in psychology as well. So there's always a book that follows me and the way that I think as well. It's called The Optimal Experience by a philosopher called Csikszentmihalyi. A uh, very complicated last name, but anyway, this guy has built, I think, one of the best models to represent flow. Uh, flow is like a state of mind. It's connected with a bit how yoga works, but when you enter in flow state, you are like at your optimal balance between challenge and skills. So you have the right skills to the challenge, and this is a journey, right? So at first, for instance, we take the example of legal stuff. I didn't have any skills. And so you don't have skills. The challenge is super high, so you're anxious, right? You're nervous. But learning those skills brings you to the upper balance between skills and challenge, which is the flow, where you are reading something that you suddenly control. And you can work with lawyers for reaching that, but it's always about learning and making this your knowledge, right? You're transferring knowledge from the expert to who you talk or who you asked help to yourself. And this is how you grow personally as, as an individual. These are, I would say these, th these, these three books are really highly recommended. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thank you. So let's learn a bit more about you as an individual outside of work. What do you do to get a clear mind? So I, I really like, uh, I really like uh, to spend external time uh, offline, right? So a lot of uh, weekends, I just don't spend time with on, on my smartphone. I do keep, you know, myself connected, of course, right? I, I'm the CEO of a company. There's a lot of responsibilities, a lot of things going on. It's not a nine to five job, right? Obviously, so this we all know. Uh, I like uh, to spend the time cooking. I like cooking because it involves a lot of creativity. Uh, it's technical, right? It, it has a challenge. Um, and it has like a benefit at the end, which is the appreciation of the food you, you, you cook, right? And this nurtures my creativity. I also like to, uh, to learn, like, so I listen to some podcasts or some videos of, of people who have been there and done that, right? Uh, people who have uh, success in, in the entrepreneurial uh, world, speeches of people, of real leaders, let's say, to learn how they express themselves in front of big crowds. Like, how can you become a better leader, right? So uh, I'm, I have interest in leadership um, and I've learned a lot from them. And also spending time with, uh, with family. Uh, family is, is something very important for me. So I, I try to, to be as present as possible, given the fact that I have this business that is still a startup, right? Uh, so it's like a, it's a sprint all the time, right? You have time and you have money and you need to achieve milestones in a certain amount of time. But I know, I know where to stop. I know where to, when to stop. If I really feel that I need time out, no one will be able to reach me. I'm just going to be completely out. And, um, and I think it's important because sometimes uh, your mind goes really, really rapidly on 
problems that you have at the at the company or challenges you have or things that are happening in the market where you're unsure about your stability as a business so obviously there's a lot of concerns but if you if you spend time without them sometimes you come back with a fresh mind you empty your mind in order to come back stronger mm, that's really interesting i i went traveling and i had an enforced break or from connectivity and as a result i thought what will i do with my time and it just so happened i had a pen and paper and i started drawing and it kind of unlocked uh, another passion of mine which is drawing and painting okay. and it's only a hobby but it, it helped clear my mind and still create at the same time yeah. yeah exactly exactly and drawing is is amazing i mean as a designer as well i i draw sometimes and uh, and it's really it empties your mind because you're sort of in this creative now you're drawing something but it's not related with your work at all right this is uh super important it's it doesn't mean it doesn't have any result if you only work the whole time at one point you will face a wall and it's going to be very strong and it's important to respect your you know your health and your time out of the job a lot of founders i see like yeah you know i work 14 hours a day mm, maybe it's not healthy man right? mm. <laughs> <laughs> just saying no i i understand i agree and you could always be working you could you could say you work 24 hours a day technically because you you've got scheduled activity from a media perspective you you're You've got a virtual assistant working on your behalf, compounding the amount of time that you can actually be productive. And mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's, that's quite interesting. You mentioned you listened to some podcasts and you listened to some leaders speaking. Are there any particular individuals that you are following at the moment that you could share with the listeners that you'd recommend? Yeah, the business leaders that I try to, to follow are, well, let's say interviews. It doesn't matter like who's the podcast from. What I follow is more like the leaders and how they they talk about their business, right? So I like to, for instance, I think the Financial Times, they do sometimes, and, and other publications, they do interviews with uh, leaders. Like, so you have like Jeff Bezos that's talking about how he founded Amazon and what are the, what were the pitfalls. And I like to learn from others and sort of learn from their mistakes and try not to replicate them and also learn how they manage their company. Obviously, in the management of, of companies, it can be, you know, bigger companies. So sometimes it's not relevant for the small scale that we have. But listening to those leaders uh, like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, there's also uh, previous interviews that, you know, are really not well known of, of Apple, for instance, uh, CEO at that time, Steve Jobs. I like to listen as well to Tim Cook sometimes just to know how he responds, like for instance, how they are articulating right now. Uh, privacy is very interesting. And so I would like to learn from how they articulate privacy, how do they talk about it, you know, wh why do they talk about it? And then I can learn from that and say like, where do we position ourselves? These guys have successfully transmitted tr trust and privacy. How can we learn from that? What can we do best? And, and that I would say are, you know, the, the focus. So if I hear about a new leader that is talking about something specific and like, you know, uh, Jack Ma from, from Alibaba, right? When he talks, this guy is super smart <laughs> and uh, it's super inspiring because I think he sees the future in a very interesting way. There's also the founder of 
of SoftBank. And, and, uh, and I think they've made an interesting move in the investment landscape, but also in they're investing in things that could be the foundation of a, of a future. Uh, and so it's interesting to understand us how and why they did that as well. It's really interesting. Thank you. And, and you mentioned learning from some of the, their mistakes. There's a question that I ask every founder every year, and hopefully it's, it's to expose a particular mistake you wouldn't want to cover off again. What would you do differently knowing what you know now? So when you start fundraising, there is this type of player or individual or you know, company that wants to help you raise money. I think the first thing that I've made as a mistake, and I think it's the, the learning is really, really well, like evaluating who helps you and what are the agreements that you sign, right? So it's very important to have like a legal representative, a lawyer, even a friend that does legal stuff that can read those agreements that you're receiving as a founder, because you're trying to get to the next step, right? The next milestone. And sometimes for fundraising, you may need help from people. So you start trusting other helpers that have been supposedly there for a long time, raising money and they know everyone and blah, 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 until you realize that they're bombarding them with uh, newsletters and investors don't really have a good perception of them. I'm not putting all of those service providers in the same bucket, right? They're not all bad, but I think it's, it's important that you really make sure that those people that help you are really helping you <laughs> and it helps your cause because if then your company is perceived as a bombarding newsletter email for investors, then it's a really big problem. Mm. Um, right. But essentially like the nature this, this is twofold. One is the sort of mistake I made in that, which was someone helping us. And then it was really unfair on what they wanted in return because basically the investment that was closed was an investment that was coming from us anyway, uh, that they had nothing to do with it. But it, it also goes to this uh, legal aspect of having someone that, you know, I didn't have the skills in law uh, and the challenge was really high and therefore I asked around. I asked around after, after this mistake. I was very careful with all the agreements uh, we go and we sign and I think now I, I, I take my precautions. No? And I also work with big companies at the moment with you know, big handset manufacturers that have like millions and millions behind. And I need to make sure that my intellectual property is protected. I need to make sure that the document, the mutual NDA is really clear and, and I am protected because this is my duty as a company. And as CEO, I am responsible for the intellectual property inside the company. I, I think this is the highlight I would, I would share right now. Obviously, there's a lot of them, <laughs> right? But, you know, it's like they are smaller and not that big. Uh, so so that's, that's okay. Uh, there are others that I prefer not to talk about because they were very, very sensitive. So, but yeah, I mean, I think what is important with mistakes is that you learn from them. Just try not to replicate them. You have a highway uh, to drive on. It's going really, really fast. If you start you know, stopping yourself every time for mistakes that you've already made before. Mm, yeah, you're not going to go really far. <laughs> Olivia, we're out of time. Thank you so much for your insight and, and uh, your experiences to date. I really do appreciate your time. And Thank you. Um, I look forward to coming back next year, if you're happy for us to do so, to 
a recap on the 12 months and establish mm -hmm. your plan for the following 12 months and, and do that again uh, and share your journey with the listeners. I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, what pleasure. What pleasure. It was really nice. Thanks a lot for your time and questions. And yeah, I, I, I really look forward for learning as well on, uh, on your next uh, hosts, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and try to learn from them as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much again, and uh, we'll catch up soon. So what do you think? We'll have another interesting story to dive into next week. Looking forward to it already. Some questions to you in the meantime. What is your story? What is your reality right now? And what are you working towards? Let me know. So you can connect with me on Twitter. Just type in Bash in the search and you'll find me. So Bash, B-A-S-H. Easy. On Instagram, it's Bash Reality. So that's Bash underscore reality. And on LinkedIn, Benjamin Ashmore. Make sure you subscribe. And until next week, cheers. <laughs>